0: Father, I'm grateful for another opportunity this morning to preach, to gather with your people, to hear instruction from your word, to sing together, sing to you. Um, I ask that you speak clearly through your word and that um, even through a especially feeble preacher this morning, I know I've heard Ben preach to say that when he prays and I'd especially feel it this morning, and I just am grateful that you are faithful. I want to pray for another church in our area, for Jason Rowland at Believer's Baptist. Very like-minded church, and um, always hear encouraging things. I've seen uh, their young people and the fruit of that church, and uh, always encouraging to hear good reports out of that church. And I pray for him as he is on a trip to the Holy Land, leading this morning that I know what a trip to that place did for me and for Ben when we were there and I pray that you would especially encourage him not just pray for his safety but that you would open his eyes and enrich his teaching and his preaching because of his time there I'm thankful for other churches that are proclaiming the gospel week in and week out that are led well and that serve well And we're thankful for Believers Baptists. We also pray, God, this morning for our leaders. This odd, tense, political climate that we're in, we just want to acknowledge again that our leaders and the kings are like streams of water in your hand. And we trust you. But we also pray... That you would give us a honorable submission to our civil authority. At the same time, keep us faithful to your word. And that you would help us in this tense climate that we're in. And give us wisdom and give us leaders with wisdom. We love you and we pray that you would speak in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. When I've had opportunity to preach, I have uh, tried to stick with these pastoral letters, starting with 1 Timothy. And we've made it up to 1 Timothy chapter 4 about a year ago. And then I've preached some topical sermons in between. But now we're at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I've been avoiding this chapter for a while because it just wasn't that impressive, and it's kind of odd. It's just this instructions for... In conspicuous ministry. It's just kind of basic, simple instructions. And so I've been avoiding it, but God has been good to, in the last few weeks, really open my eyes to, well, number one, you don't just skip a passage just because you don't like it. (laughs) But open my eyes to the goodness, the God-glorifying, church-honoring, gospel-propelling words in this passage. So... We're going to read a big chunk. We're going to read the whole chapter um, and then the first two verses of chapter 6. And we're going to look at this whole chapter together because it fits together. And before you go, oh man, he's going to read a lot and it's going to be boring. It's not hard to follow, Um, but we'll read that here in just a second. Gender roles are being confused. Men don't want to lead. Women want to lead. The feminist movement is active and well and robust. The family unit's not revered. Cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches wag the dog. There's great disdain for civil authority and there's a tense political climate. Churches are struggling primarily because of unaccountable leaders who persist in sin. There's an expectation for the church to be entertaining, to be large, to be impressive, and have many benefits. Churches aren't seen as a family, but another organization that benefits the members of the club. Pastors are accumulated to tickle ears, to not preach the gospel in season and out of season. Christians are entitled and presumptuous both inside and outside the church. Members of the church as well as members of the community take advantage of the church's generosity and its availability at every corner. Young people are typically dismissed for the most part and the elderly are disrespected for the most part. Believing in Jesus alone, salvation by faith alone in Him is viewed as unintelligent, boring and insufficient. Tradition or innovation are the idols. You either cling to tradition or you cling to innovation for your worth and your purpose. That's what gets things done, either traditions or new ideas. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I just described Ephesus. Yes, it does sound familiar to us. But I just described this city And this region where Timothy, this young, timid, hates confrontation. He's newish to the pastorate. And he's been sent into this area to regulate and fix it as a pastor. A daunting task, right? And so in that, Paul encourages him through a letter. Thank goodness he didn't just go meet with Paul. He says in 1 Timothy 3, I want to meet with you, I want to come, but I want to write these things down first. Thanks be to God that he wrote it down, right? That he wrote it down so that we, in our context, have these instructions to regulate and be the church in this type of context. And so it's written down for us right here. Let's read chapter 5, and then we'll look at care and accountability for those that serve. We're looking at care and accountability for widows, elders, and slaves. But we'll say employers and employees. Care and accountability for those who serve. Verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and devoted herself in every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides, don't throw anything at me, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their household, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are really widows. Verse 17, elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that they may so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging and doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on the hands, or nor take part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. And in parentheses, by the way, Timothy, don't just drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not disres- be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since, they, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All right, so back to the first two verses of chapter 5. Family. The church is a family, not a club. The household of God. You'll remember 1 Timothy 3.15. That's where we ended the chapter 3. And we have all this instruction in the first three chapters. And then he stops at the end of chapter 3. And all the instruction leading up to 1 Timothy 3.15 is, I'm telling you these things because the church is a household. Household of God. It's the church of a living God. And it's the pillar and the buttress of truth. So all the instruction leading up to chapter 315 is for the church. It's what the church is supposed to be, and it's fortifying who the church is. And then all the instruction away from 3 to the end of the letter is also instruction for the church. To build up, to have a church that is a household, a church that professes and exemplifies a living God, and a church that is the pillar and the buttress of truth, the only truth and absolute truth. And so all this instruction makes up this church, this household of God. It's a family. Now, when he says here in verse 1 and 2, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him at you would as your father. Treat the men like brothers and the younger women like sisters and treat the older women like mothers. For me, I'm sitting here thinking... I know how my kids treat each other sometimes. And I'm saying, don't treat the younger women like you do your sister. Some sons in here, I'm not going to name names, aggravate their sisters, right? Some do. Probably not your sons. They don't aggravate their sisters. And some of your daughters don't, aren't mean to their brothers, right? Nobody does that. So my first thought is, don't do that. But in this context, this context, they are not viewing in Ephesus, these Christians that come to church together are not viewing one another as brothers and sisters. They're just coming to the club for benefit. There's a great chasm between their individual family and the church family, and they don't see it as that. And so I looked. I did a little quick survey of family rules, you know, those things that you put up, put a sign up, our family rules, and you post it on the fridge, These are our family rules and I did a quick survey and I pulled the top six that I found offline. This isn't necessarily from Christian websites, just general family rules, right? Number one, treat yourself and your siblings with respect. Clean up your messes. Respect others' property. Show gratitude. Be kind and patient with others in your family. Don't disrespect your parents by arguing. That sounds great, right? But when I put it on the fridge, it doesn't fix it. It may for you, but it doesn't do anything for me to just put that on the fridge, right? We have to walk it out. We have to be that. We have to put forth effort to treat one another like family. It takes work. It doesn't mean, and Paul's not saying here that nobody's going to have arguments. He's not saying that it's going to be easy to get along. We're a family made up of families. But just because we don't always get along, we also don't disregard in the church considerations for age, considerations for gender, and deal with one another like family. The church in Ephesus was beginning to treat the church like it was an organization that benefited their family. It may look like like this for us. You're working in the nursery or you're babysitting somebody else's kids in the church, right? And you hear, you give them some instruction and you may hear, you're not my mom. Or you're not my dad. Or maybe some of us that are older see somebody else's kids and we think, boy, if that was my kid, <laughs> right? If that was my kid, I would, I would have them straightened out. And we can be very condescending towards other children. So for us, the instruction is this in verse 1 and 2. To the older ladies, treat them like a mom. Be respectful. Be careful in how you talk to them and confront them and walk with them. Be tender. Be respectful. To older men, be respectful. Don't dismiss them. And older men, older ladies, don't dismiss young people. Don't be condescending Because they're young. Be patient, right? Like you would your own children. When the church is just another club, there's a greater chasm between your family and the church family. If this is just a place you come to receive the benefits of being a member, then there's no family connection. And that's what's happening in Ephesus. Now, to the widows, verse 3. Those honor widows who are truly widows. What does he mean, truly widows? You're either a widow or you're not, right? No, he, he, he frames this and he says, we're going to look at care and accountability for three people who serve. Widows, elders, and the slave. And when it comes to caring for widows, first of all, you care for those who are truly widows. There's some accountability. There's a framing for the care that you give them. A true widow, in Paul's eyes, would be someone who didn't have a dowry. A dowry is something set up by her father so that if her husband dies, she can be cared for. Now, not every lady had a dowry. She might not have had land. Her daddy might not have been rich. So she might not have a dowry. Her husband may not have had land. So they truly are destitute. They have nothing. No pension, no retirement. No land, no livestock. They have nothing. Paul changes the assumption that the church should care for just any widow, with or without a dowry. In fact, if they have believing family, they should care for them first. If she has no one, no dowry, no land, then the church should absolutely care for her when they have nothing. There should be respect and honor. This honor word here means... Provision, money, things. This, these ladies are without the basic necessities of life. And if they are and they don't have believing family, the church is to provide for their basic necessities. And that's why he says, don't enroll them in this passage. If you were wondering, enroll them in what? There was this expectation in the Jewish culture that you took care of all the widows exclusively. Paid for everything. Transportation, housing food you took care of them and Paul's saying wait a minute <laughs> wait just a minute you do that however let's frame it in the context of the household of God pillar and buttress of truth it has to be accountable they need to have no family they need to be engaging the church he says if they in verse let's see verse 6 if they continue in supplications and prayers but she who is self-indulgent is self-indulgent is dead while she lives what he's getting at here is these ladies, these widows, need to be engaging the church. There were widows who just came and signed up for the welfare program at church, and they didn't ever come to church. They didn't ever pray with the people. They never gathered and worshipped and heard teaching. And Paul says, don't enroll them in, your, in that care. If she's truly older, he, sits, he says, as a suggestion, 60 years old. If they're younger than 60... I've got something for the younger widows in just a minute, but she truly needs to be older. A one man woman. She was committed in her marriage, right? He's not saying she could have only been married once. He's saying she was committed to her husband when she was married. It's very similar to the qualification for the deacon and elder, a one woman man. Here, the accountability for her is that she was dedicated to her marriage, and she has a good reputation. Not all of these widows would have brought up children. But if she did, she served her family well. There was fruit. She served the church. She served God. She was devoted. And so that is the care. It sounds outlandish. It sounds over the top. And I I think because we don't really know destitute, right? We're not real familiar with people who absolutely have nothing. We'll get to that in a minute. Younger widows, verse 11. Let's read that again. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies. What he's saying here is younger widows need a job. They need something to do. Because some of these younger widows, what they're doing is, they lose their husband, they're grieving, they get through the grief, and then they just think, well, the church will take care of me. Right? And they're taking advantage of that care, that widow care. And these younger widows, what was happening is they had nothing to do. They weren't involved in ministry, they weren't serving anyone, they were just receiving this care. and who among us doesn't get into trouble when all we have is idle time? Right? And that's what was happening. And Paul's instruction here is if a younger widow, she needs, if she's she's widowed, she needs a job. She needs to be involved in ministry. She needs to take care of the other widows. This over-the-top care for widows and the destitute is framed by accountability. Do we even know Destitute. Not many of us are familiar with what destitute really looks like in America and where we live. I don't, I don't think we really know what that is. There's insurance, there's pensions, there's retirement, there's health care. There's very few that are really destitute. But we as a church must be poised, must be poised to care for those who are missing the basic necessities of life in the church. We have to be poised to lean into and lean towards family, this family. God help us if we build bigger buildings and get smoke machines and lights and start new ministries to reach people and we buy new equipment to make it sound better and look better. And yet when someone becomes destitute, the church can't do anything. God help us. So we have to think, right? We have to think about where we're putting our money as a church. We have to think about where we're leaning. We have to think about what are we prepared to do to help the needy in the church? What are we poised to do? That's just the balance that Paul's bringing here. He says, do not let benevolence be a burden to the church. Be poised. Take care of your family, your elderly, your needy first. But the church has got to be poised to come alongside. So just to frame for us. Also, many of our parents and grandparents are living longer these days. Many of you are faced with the care of your parents' health, care for their mobility. You, some of you, have led or are leading in the primary care for those in your families that are older. I've seen it. I've seen it in my parents. Faithful, lonely, unapplauded, unheralded work of caring for the elderly believing in their family. And it is God-pleasing. It is church-building. Even though nobody sees it, even though very few are aware, we can trust it's God-pleasing. It pleases Him and it builds the church. It's mysterious. I don't have it figured out, but I know it's God-honoring and church-building for you to take care of your family. I've seen it in so many of you. The long hours, the late nights, the finances, the paperwork, all of it. And some of you are approaching that. And hear me say, while that is a tough work, the church should come alongside you in that. And some of your parents are at another church. Their church should come alongside them and come alongside you in that. But know this. It is good God-glorifying, God-pleasing, church-adorning, honorable work to take care of the elderly in your family. It's not heralded, it's not applauded, but it is a pillar and buttress household of the living God benefiting work. And there's this interesting dance between faithful family members caring for the elderly and the church coming alongside. It's good. And it's what we're to be about. So don't, don't wonder for a minute. And, and give each other grace when they have to be away to take care of their parents. Uh, or when they have to make changes and aren't available to you because they're caring for a family member. Come alongside them and encourage them. No, They're not getting home from a long night with an elderly parent and and no one's there to receive them to congratulate them, right? Pat them on the back. Most of that you don't see as a church family. So be aware of those who are caring for their elderly in our family, right? Verse 17, the elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Double honor. We've already talked about this honor for widows, right? This honor for the elderly. Honor for one another as brothers and sisters, as a family. And he turns it up a notch. And he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double the honor. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. This word honor is where we get the word honorarium. Have you ever heard that word honorarium? What a preacher gets paid to come preach or teach? It's payment, it's provision, it's care. And it comes with accountability, but this is over-the-top care for those that preach and teach. That is God-glorifying, God-pleasing, pillar-and-buttress fortifying work of caring for those that, do, that teach and preach. We have two elders who labor in this as vocation, and one, me, who is a teaching elder, but I labor for my primary vocation, doing something else. And hopefully, I fit what the Word says, an elder, but is able to teach. <laughs> That's about all I'll, I'll assume. Able to teach, right? And so we have two that labor in that. Both elders deserve double, double honor, okay? It's hard for me to sit up here and tell you that, because I'm, I'm having to be the one to speak it. So all the elders deserve double honor, but especially, especially take note of those who do this as their vocation. Especially take care of them. When they depend on preaching and teaching for their provision, we should especially take care of them so they don't become discontent or distracted by the cares of the world. It's backwards contentment teaching. You think if your children are discontent, we're going to take their stuff away so they'll be happy with what they have. It's the opposite. You don't teach a preacher and a teacher to be content by taking things away. You make sure every need is met. Over the top honor and care for those who do this as their job. Over the top. That keeps them from being discontent Looking for greener pastures, just very practically. It keeps them content to take good care of them. Don't muzzle the ox. We have two oxes here. Been waiting all week to call them an ox. Ben and Scott. We have two oxes that labor. Most don't understand their labor. I haven't always understood their labor. I hear it from some of you. Some of us are jealous that they get to do it for a living. It's okay. We just own it. Some of us are jealous that they get to do this for a living, right? Just study their Bible all week, right? Just sit around, study their Bible. Be nice. Must be nice, right? Not to have to really work. (laughs) The work of this ox is uncanny. Uncanny. And I mean that in the very literal sense. Uncanny means a mysterious work in an unsettling way. It is unsettling. I think now I'm kind of the lucky one because I get to take my mind off the sermon because I get to do something else during the week. But to sit with this weight of preaching every week, it's uncanny. You can't describe it. I am that perfect illustration of that today, preaching. Everything on Friday and Saturday is hypersensitive, right? I mean, anything can shoot your wheels off. Nothing goes right, rarely, before you stand to preach. It is an uncanny labor. And it's hard to describe. As much care patience, attention, provision, sentimentality, and compassion that you show a widow, double it for your preachers. That's what he's saying. And it makes for a healthy and robust church pillar and buttress of truth when we do that. And it's God-pleasing. The accountability here is that they rule well. What does that mean? What does that look like? rule well. I think about Paul's comments in both these letters. That they protect sound doctrine. Preach in season and out of season. No matter what it is and who you're talking to or if they'll like it or not preach the gospel. Take ownership of your people. Do the hard work of telling heretics to get out. The hard work of confronting people who are living in sin. That is a load of fun, I tell you. It's not easy to constantly be thinking about the instructions you need to give people for living. The verses that are popping your heart and your mind constantly weighted by Am I giving these people the gospel? Am I giving them what they need? Am I feeding them what they need? It's a barrage, it's a weight. I think about Jesus' words to Peter. Feed my sheep. John 10. I'm the good shepherd. Well, what does it look like to be a good shepherd? And Jesus says, you you sacrifice your life and desires for the people. You put what you would hope for personally, and you set it aside for the people, for those you shepherd." You take ownership. He says in John 10 that the, the, uh, a good shepherd isn't a hired hand. He owns it. This is I'm not just hired to do this. I own this. This is mine. I am attached to these sheep. Now I understand what Ben talks about when he says, don't let this be a J-O-B. I mean, it is his job. There's no getting around that. However, don't treat it like that. Don't come in here like a hired hand and... Thanks be to God that we don't have preachers who treat this like that. They own you. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean they take ownership of your well-being, your spiritual walk. We have good shepherds. They don't leave the people of the church unprotected like a hired hand. They know their sheep and their sheep know them. A good shepherd is known by his people. And he knows them. North American Mission Board came out with a survey. Um, I wasn't raised in an elder-led church formally. I mean, So this is all I've known. This is, you know, Crosspoint is it as far as elders that rule well. That's the only comparison that I have. But I've never had anything else to compare it to. And that was hard in the early days to not know, okay, how do we do this? How do we rule well? And learn it together. According to the North American Mission Board, the average tenure of a pastor right now is 3.8 years. Seven out of ten Southern Baptist members surveyed right now say every sermon is about conversion. They don't ever hear anything else from their Bible except conversion. Conversion sermons, that's it. The next two in line are morality and personal growth. So, most people right now are hearing, according to this survey, about conversion, personal growth, and morality. Very anemic program. (laughs) Very weak program there, if that's all that people are getting. And it's not in line with what Paul told Timothy to preach. When I think about our ox, is, ox is, oxen. (laughs) What? When I think about Ben McGraw and Scott Sutton our oxen I think about this passage and I think about these letters to them and to Timothy and uh, rebuke those that are in persistent sin without prejudging or being partial and I think check mark for these guys check faithfully walked in rebuking sin without partiality and without prejudging people check check ailments brought on by their labor. Need some wine for the stomach, Timothy. I've seen both these men walk in physical ailments due to this labor. Check. This list from Paul, this list from Jesus about being a good shepherd, check, 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 check. When I hear people talk about cross points, yeah, we love our small group. We love Clay Petzold's visitor kiosk. We love the children's ministry. We, we love, there's a lot of things that people love about being here. And I don't ever hear anybody say, what about the preaching? Meh. It's all right. Thanks be to God that we have men who faithfully feed us week in and week out with the full counsel of the gospel. And uh, I know it sounds like I blow sunshine and rainbows every time I'm in the pastoral letters about Scott and Ben, but I am thankful. I am thankful. And let me say this. I'm not just gloating and bragging. <clears throat> uh, you can't, all those things I just mentioned about them in our church, you cannot draw a line to any one man as the source of that goodness and grace. You can't. You can't. He's assembled a, a host of deacons around us, wonderful families who serve. And all of this is because He is good and gracious. It's not because of Ben and Scott, but they've walked faithfully in this, and we have the fruit, and we have the pillar and buttress of truth that is healthy and strong. Thanks to God. Not thanks to Ben and Scott. Thanks to God. And both of them... Ten plus years here. Now, I'm not going to give them a badge or a medal for that. And they don't need to be doted on for that. Thanks be to God, they've been here ten plus years. Hand to the plow. In Luke 9, Jesus says, All these people are wanting to follow Him, but they're not counting the cost. Foxes have holes. Bury the dead. You really want to follow me? He says in verse 61, yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. He said to them, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. is fit for the kingdom. And these two oxen have put their hand to the plow for 10 plus years and have never looked back. Maybe occasionally in the other pasture, how can I get out of here? But never looked back. 10 plus years, both of them. I am thankful. Colossians 3.15. Turn to Colossians 3, chapter 3 quickly. This is where we land in regard. I, I, want, I want to make sure you know I'm not just gloating and bragging and blowing sunshine and rainbows all over the place. I am thankful And in Colossians, he's talking to the Colossians about these very same things, about how you, he's giving them instruction on how to be the church. And he says this in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. That's one sentence by itself. And be thankful, period. Let the word of Christ dwell in, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Thank you, Lord, that we have that here. Anybody have a life group shepherd that admonishes you and teaches you in all wisdom? Sat in here last week and heard from the life group shepherds and it's amazing how well they are leading. And that flows down from being ruled well by their elders. It's wonderful fruit. In all wisdom, singing songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Not to Ben, not to Scott, not to the deacons, not to Brad. Thankful to God that you are admonished in wisdom. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to who? God, the Father, through Him. And preparing the Corinthians for a gift to help supply. He's going to go to the Macedonians and he's going to ask the Corinthians for a gift and he's going to help supply the needs for these other churches so they can take care of their widows and their pastors. And before he comes to the Corinthians, he says this in, in, in chapter 9. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest for righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, greed, elders, widows, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace upon you, thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift of elders who rule well. Thanks be to God. That is where we land. And we're all well acquainted with the weaknesses of Brad Cardwell, Ben McGraw, and Scott Sutton. Right? We all are well. You better be. Because <laughs> we're not perfect. Sheep leading sheep. And that's why he provides accountability in First Timothy 5, verse 20. Here's the accountability. Number one, that they rule well. You don't give them double honor if they're not ruling well. Not shepherding well. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. I'm sorry, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This does not say, don't you ever accuse an elder of anything. Don't you ever, hold, don't you ever say anything about them that's negative. Don't you ever confront them. That's not what this says. It says, be careful with that. Just be careful with it. But you better hold them accountable to all these things. Just make sure if you're seeing something that needs to be confronted in an elder, make sure that a couple of other people are seeing it too. And I'm not saying build a faction of people to come get him. I'm saying make sure that other people in all humility and wisdom are seeing what you're seeing. And if so, confront your elder. Come to us and confront us. If we're not preaching sound doctrine, if we're not running out the heretics and protecting you, if we're not shepherding you, if we're inattentive to you, if we're not praying for you, if we're persistent in sin, confront us. Come to us. Just make sure somebody else is seeing it too and it's not personal between you and them. Does that make sense? Paul's framing this accountability. Just be careful with it. Not saying don't do it. And then he says, don't take the laying on of hands lightly. This, I think this refers here, I think he means all ordination, deacons or elders. Be careful with who you appoint to that position. There's high accountability, there's high honor, but there's high accountability. Be careful. We've walked that, we've seen it, we've done it. And you have to be careful with it. And then he says, Wine for the stomach. This uh, wine for the stomach passage here. Take some wine, not just water. And this is why I think, I firmly believe Paul's saying this, is because I think Timothy's ailments are directly connected to the grief that other leadership have given him. He's been dismissed by other churches, he's been dismissed by other pastors in town, he's been dismissed by his own leadership, Hymenaeus was one of them. He was just gathering people, going on with this lofty speech about uh, generations and genealogy. He was a very impressive preacher, but he wasn't preaching the gospel. And Timothy had to confront him and tell him, stop doing that or leave. And I mean, this guy had ailments, physical ailments from the weight of this labor. And Paul says, hey, if you're hurting, calm down and have a glass of wine. (laughs) Take care of yourself, right? That's the advice here. Take care of yourself. I want to jump to chapter 6 verse 1 and deal with this third servant. And then I want to come back to verse 24 and 25 of chapter 5 in just a second. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Here's the instruction for this church, and here's the instruction for us. In here, we're brothers, right? But if your boss is believing, just because he's a Christian saved by grace, and you're a Christian saved by grace, doesn't give you the right to be disrespectful to him in the workplace. You, you can't take... Christian, don't take advantage of one another in the marketplace. Christian, you're dealing with another Christian in business, pay him full price. And if you're an employer, charge people less if they're Christians. I mean, it sounds so <laughs> simple, but why do we try and take advantage of one another so much? Because we're Christians together. No. Honor the employer. Honor the The business. Honor the company. Honor. And if you're in charge, honor your believing employees. Be respectful to them. Pay them well. That's the gist of what he's saying here. Christian, let's stop taking advantage of one another in the marketplace uh, for Christ. You know, we're Christians. Well, we can just, you know, I can get a better deal because I'm a Christian, he's a Christian. There's honor when we treat one another with respect and fairness. It's God glorifying, it's God pleasing, and it's pillar and buttress fortifying when we treat one another with fairness and respect in the marketplace. Now, back to verse 24 and 25 of, of chapter five. He he throws this little passage in here, these two verses, and it seems out of place because he's given instructions for care for servants, right? We're, we're giving care and accountability for widows and care and accountability for the elder. We're giving care and accountability in the workplace. Why throw in this passage here? The sin, Verse 24, The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. He's encouraging Timothy here. And he's saying, Some of these men that have been giving you grief... Some of these men that go on sinning, even after you rebuke them, some people don't see it. Some people don't see their sin. And I know it drives you crazy, Timothy. I know it keeps you up at night because they don't listen to you. But their sins will be put on display at judgment. I'm in charge of it. I got it. That's what God's saying to Timothy here. I'm in charge of that. I know you, other people may not see the people that you're having to confront. They may not see their sin. Now, some people's sin is conspicuous, right? Some of us are blessed with that where everybody knows our sin, but some of us have sins that we hide. And Timothy, he's telling Timothy here, don't fret. All sin will be uncovered. It's not on you. Take a little wine for your stomach. And the other side of that coin is this. So also, good works are conspicuous. Even those that aren't cannot remain hidden. Timothy, this work of caring for the elderly and respect and honor for them and one another and taking care of your elders and pastors, those that preach and teach, you, you may think that that is a lonely work. It, nobody else may understand it. It's not impressive. It's not impressive. It may not grow your church to a thousand. The work that you do is not heralded. This kind of work of honoring those who serve, it's not heralded. Taking care of your parents. Taking care of the widows. Paying a preacher well. Just not that impressive of a ministry, right? But it's good ministry. It's essential. It's very basic. I told you this isn't complicated. He's very straightforward here. And what he's saying is a lot of people will not invite Ben McGraw and Scott Sutton to preach at a conference because this place isn't running 1,000. The, the ministry of your church may be pretty inconspicuous. The ministry that you're engaged in and taking care of your family members is going to be pretty inconspicuous. Nobody's going to see it. Preaching the gospel over and over and over, well, exposing the passage may not always be that entertaining and it may not always be that impressive, but it is good, and it's good ministry, and it, it can feel inconspicuous, you know. I struggled with that early on when we first came to Cross Point. We were leading and so many good things were happening, and Ben's preaching the barn down, Scott's, pre- I mean, we're all enjoying all this, and I'm like, when is somebody going to show up and do a report on us? I mean. We got it good here. And reading articles about other pastors because they're famous. I'm like, what? when's somebody going to call one of us for an interview? Which that's pride. However, we must trust God enough that if we walk like this in these simple, faithful instructions, we might remain inconspicuous. And I'm fine with it. Embrace it. Embrace inconspicuous ministry. Embrace it, parents. Embrace it, life group shepherds. Nobody ran out and posted on Facebook about our life group. it. Well, it may not be that it wasn't great. It may just be you have an inconspicuous ministry. Embrace it. Nobody's going to toot the horn for you. Embrace it. It is good God-glorifying, church-building, kingdom-advancing ministry to embrace inconspicuous ministries like care for widows and caring for your pastor's well, And then treating one another well in the marketplace. Nobody saw that I gave them a discount. Nobody saw that I paid him more than he asked for. Nobody saw it. Inconspicuous is the backbone of a church. Backbone stuff here. And then you end up having pastors who stay 10 plus years. And you have families that are faithful and you start other churches and it's expanding. And again, I'm not bragging. I'm thankful to God for these instructions. And that here's what I'm thankful about when I read this stuff, I'm not pining for it. Does that make sense? I, I don't sit around going, man, I wish our church was like that. I wish we took care of our pastors. I wish we had good benevolence ministry. I wish we had good leadership. I wish our people treated each other better. I don't pine for those things. They're, they've played out in front of me the last 13 years. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So it, it may sound like I'm pridefully standing up here and gloating and needing a pat on the back. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> I, I'm just thankful that what I read here is what I'm seeing played out. And here is the temptation for us. Don't veer from this. The temptation is hard for me and Ben and Scott. We talk about it all the time. To want to go to innovation or tradition. Or, or, you know, we've been doing it like this. Nothing's really changed. We're staying at about 300. Maybe we ought to try something new. Or build something different. Or whatever. Instead of trust the instructions for the pillar and buttress of truth right here. And not veer from being faithful with these things. Some ministries are going to have a high profile and some aren't. Some good works are just quiet, hidden, unimpressive, and the world thinks it's pretty boring. The value in a church like this, following these instructions and not moving away from them, is primary. And the greater temptation for us as a church in America, because of where we live, there's a greater temptation here in America, for us to run ahead of these instructions to be something flashy, impressive, and innovative. Now, I'm not saying innovation and new ideas are bad. We're not going to be a stick in the mud about everything. We're not never going to try new things. However, we don't veer from the basics and trust that the basics are what making this place a God-glorifying place because we do what He says about it. And we operate and we regulate the church like He says to regulate it. I'm not saying we never try anything new. I'm just saying, the temptation is there, in America especially, to run ahead of these instructions to be innovative. In his book, Japanese Christian, I'm going to butcher his name, Kanzo Uchimura, in his book, Can Americans Teach Japanese Good Religion? That's the title of the book. Can Americans Teach Japanese Good Religion? He says, Americans must count religion, count, like counting numbers. Count religion in order to see or show its value. In America, big churches are successful churches. To win the greatest number of converts with the least expense is their constant endeavor to get a good deal. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Oh, how those Americans love their numbers. Mankind goes down to America to learn how to live the earthly life, but to live the heavenly life, they go other places. Mankind goes down to America to, to learn how to live the earthly life. But to live the heavenly life, they go somewhere else. <laughs> Jared Wilson is a pastor of, or was a pastor until recently, of a small church in the Northeast. So he's speaking very objectively here because he is also a, a pastor of a small church who does get invited to big conferences because he is famous and he has written books. Okay, So he can speak to this. He says, we are obsessed with bigger, better, and faster. We define success according to the quantity and presentation. We reckon churches increasing in size is effective. And so our heroes are the big church guys. They speak at conferences, they publish the books, they exert their influence. But the guys at the little churches, they have just as much, if not more, to teach us about how to shepherd and how to disciple. Amen. That's a small church guy saying that who's also famous. And don't hear me say, I don't believe that big is bad and I don't believe that small is good. I just don't believe that big is always good and that small is always bad, okay? That conspicuous ministries that are out in front of everybody are bad. No, they're not. But let's embrace the inconspicuous, faithful plotting of consistent preaching and consistent care for the needy and consistent marketplace behavior. Heroes, heroes... Elders that rule and manage well are heroes. Band of deacons and deaconesses that regulate and manage the life of the church well, those are heroes. Whether they get applauded or write a book or not. Preaching in season and out of season, that's a hero. Life group shepherds that admonish with all wisdom and pay attention to the sermon, those are heroes. Those are heroes. Thank you, Lord. Household of the living God. Church of the living God. Pillar and buttress of truth. What makes it so? Proper care and accountability for those that serve well. That's what makes it so. Faithful, quiet, unimpressive ministries whose affairs are regulated by faithful men and women and a hungry people who know they need it. I want to read Colossians 3 one more time. Colossians three, fifteen through seventeen. This is how this is our response to these truths. Colossians three. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Thanks be to God if you have any of this or in chapter 5 or if you see any of it or you've enjoyed any of it or you're walking in any of it as a leader or a member if you've seen I've seen so many of you take such good care of my children like they were yours I've seen you take care of your elderly and your family it's not unapplauded You may not hear it, but I'm applauding it. Paul is. God is. I'm thankful that we have had two oxen that work their behinds off. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the pillar and buttress of truth. And I am saying that is not gloating. That is not proudful boasting. I am thankful to God for where we are. Let us not Worship, innovation, or tradition. Let's keep going in these instructions. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would guard our hearts against being conceited or condescending towards large, impressive ministries or towards large churches or towards anybody else. Guard us from that, God. Guard Ben, Scott, and I and the deacons from being conceited about our work. Help us not to sin and prejudge with partiality when it comes to confronting and leading with others in this town. Guard us in that. And at the same time, God, we are so thankful at what you have done and the instructions you've given us to walk in. Thank you. And thank you for the fruit that it's producing. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we pass out the supper, I want to read so much of Jesus' ministry. Was inconspicuous. It may not look like that when you're, you you see how the crowd's right. I mean, that, he's making a stir, but, but remember how many times he told he told people, "Don't go back and tell everybody. You keep that. Don't go running around. I don't need to be conspicuous right now. I need to be inconspicuous." And then the disciples thought, "Hey, are you gonna? When are you gonna become king?" And he said, "Nah, guys, my kingdom is invisible. It's in the invisible in the hearts of men. This is going to be an otherworldly." invisible kingdom inconspicuous right and then he tells the disciples go go prepare a guest room we're going to get away for Passover just you and me inconspicuous right he says this And when the hour came he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer I tell you I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. A new covenant in my blood. When we take this supper, it feels very inconspicuous, doesn't it? Only, only we, we really know we're doing it right in, in this room. Wee piece of bread and a little cup. Feels very unimpressive. It also feels very mundane, doesn't it? Because we do it every week. Yet, it's good. God glorifying, people building, church building to take this. And it's good instruction and it's a good gift. And I am thankful for it. Let's pass out the supper. I'm thankful for a good shepherd that laid down his life for us. I'm thankful for good shepherding that lays down its life for others that I see all the time here. I'm thankful for a good gospel and good instruction. If you're thankful with me. Take and eat. Take and drink. Let's continue worship. Well, I promise this morning wasn't a campaign to give... Ben and Scott are raised, uh, but we can talk about it if you want. Um, it wasn't that. They're well cared for. I mean, they would tell you that. Um, but the reason they are, and I want to say this again, is because we have a team of deacons here that, man, they lead our finances and our benevolence and our youth and our facilities so well that that team of deacons pays attention to these instructions. They're not just sitting around doing what we tell them to do. They, they know this. <laughs> and that's why we enjoy what we enjoy here in the household of God called Crosspoint Fellowship. It's because we have deacons who pay attention and they, they do it like this. Man, it's good. It's so good. Um, I just really don't want to come off conceited. But I do want to come off thankful. I was very thankful for instructions and for deacons and other men who follow them. Pillar and buttress of truth. I'm so thankful. Uh, The only announcement that we have is that this Wednesday night is the last one for this semester. Okay, so no Wednesday night programming in the summer. Uh, This Wednesday night is the last one, so your chance to get back involved in that. Let me pray, and then um, we'll be dismissed. Y'all stand with me as we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and what you've done and what you have given us in the church and what you're building. And thank you for the instructions to do it. Thank you for faithful families, men and women, who pay attention to your instruction. We love you. We're grateful. Keep us hand to the plow, not looking back. In Jesus' name, amen.